The Athletic. Morocco have made history here at the Qatar 2022 World Cup by becoming the first team from Africa to reach the World Cup semi-finals. They are unprecedented. Their manager, Walid Regragi, has dubbed his crew the Rocky of the World Cup. They succeed because they keep going and going and going. They are the Atlas Lions, taking on the world. But who are they? How have they got here? And what does it mean to have an African nation at this stage of the World Cup? This is Morocco's story from Qatar and Casablanca. I'm Adam Leventhal and this is The Athletic Football Podcast. like a dream my brother it feels like a dream i still can't believe it and i'm scared to wake up tomorrow i believe that we'll go to the final everybody from the arab world is supporting us and also africa we hope to make them proud it's time for africa it's time for morocco yeah no one in qatar is gonna sleep bro we're gonna party all night morocco have been the underdogs of this tournament the dark horses the history makers say it how you like they are not expected to be this far in the competition. But just walk around Doha and you'll be sure to be greeted by a Morocco flag or shirt. And so much talk about Messi and Argentina, but it's probably 60-40 in Morocco's favour. The country have made history many times before as the first African nation to participate in the World Cup, the first African nation to reach the knockout stage in 1986, and now the first African nation to reach both the quarterfinal and semi-final. They're setting the standard, laying the path for others to follow. Looking at their calendar year, perhaps not a huge amount was expected of the North African outfit. They went out in the quarter-finals of the delayed Africa Cup of Nations earlier this year, losing to Egypt, got a new coach and welcomed back Hakim Ziyech and Nusser Mazrui to the fold. More on that later. Morocco came into this tournament as a bit of an unknown. Here's Liam Tham speaking ahead of the tournament. I'd argue Morocco have probably got one of the best fullback pairings at the entire tournament, Akraf Hakimi and Mazraoui. Again, there's maybe question marks over them defensively. They've got the difficulty of having changed head coach, which can, I think, outcome by will be a positive or a negative. Either they, they do well and it's our, you know, a new head coach bounce or um, players. But it means Ziyech is back as well. Yes, so. and that's a great thing. Um, so he often plays off the right as a left footer coming inside. Likewise, you'll get Sofiane Buffal um, on the right coming in. So really dynamic wingers. These are advancing over overlapping fullbacks. Um, I'm not quite sure if they'll be as adventurous as they can be when they play sort of other African sides, but I think they're a really fun team to watch that most people will probably box them in as a you know deep defending team only on the break, but they're they're very much more than that, so they'll definitely open a few eyes, I think. Whilst we've had the return of Ziek, it's the coach Walid Regragi who's really had the love and the adulation. At the media centre where the press conferences take place, Abby Patterson has gone along to meet the Athletics' Luke Bosher. He's attended a few of the Moroccan press conferences here and is intrigued about how the relationship between Regragi and the press pack has developed over the course of the World Cup. I think he is a very charismatic man. He's a very eloquent speaker. He speaks well on social issues, tactical issues 
about the dreams of him and his Moroccan people. And he's a very honest, he's very honest in his press conferences. And I think people respect that. I mean, it kind of depends on who you speak to, but we've seen some quite nice moments, I think. Regragui, ahead of the Portugal quarterfinal, in the, obviously the aftermath of the Spain round of 16 match, he was applauded into his pre-match uh, press conference, which I thought, it doesn't happen that often, but I respect the fact that for Morocco, this is, this is a dream. And then I was at his post-match press conference, having been at the game, and he got a standing ovation from the Morocco uh, press who were sitting right at the front, which again was a nice touch. And I think throughout all of that, he's managed to kind of remain humble, Consistently throughout, he's always said, we're not just here to make up the numbers. We don't, we're not satisfied with getting to the round of 16. We're not satisfied with getting to the quarterfinal or the semifinal. He's like, we're in it to win it. He has this thing. It's like, well, why not? Why can't we dream? Why shouldn't we dream? The World Cup is about dreaming. And this is why, like, football is the best sport in the world. I wonder, in the press conferences, have there been any moments where you see the journalists slightly in awe of him? On more than one occasion, you've had journalists go... Coach Walid, I don't actually have a question for you. I just wanted to say thank you for all you've done with the Moroccan team. Thank you for what it means to the Moroccan people. I'm so happy. I'm proud. I'd call you a brother. That's the kind of reaction he's got. And again, he kind of smiles and says thank you very much and kind of remains humble. I don't think, I don't get the impression that it boosts his ego too much. I think he's a very grounded individual. Note how Luke says Coach Walid. That's how he's known here, and that's how I'll refer to him from now on. Coach Walid is the perfect embodiment of one of the key themes that comes up time and again when talking about Morocco, and it's the issue of identity. People identify as one of or a combination of Arab, African, French, and of course, Moroccan. Coach Walid had this to say on the subject of identity and his in particular. I'm France. Yes, I was born in France. I am a dual national and that's an honour, a pleasure. It's an honour and a pleasure to face France. I am the Morocco coach and we will face the best team in the world tomorrow. The most important thing is to reach the final tomorrow. As a coach, it doesn't really matter who we are playing, it doesn't interest me. I am a football coach, so I focus on the game. If it was England we are facing, it would be the same. As a coach, you want to test yourself as a team. That's the message I send to my players. When we play for Morocco, we are Moroccan. It's a football match and it should be a football festival. And for all dual nationals, it should be a football festival. If it's Morocco or France who wins, I'm sure many dual nationals will be happy either way. I don't think we should put players in different categories according to whether they play in the Moroccan league or our dual nationals. When you play for the national team, you are Moroccan and you are there because the coach thinks that you have what is needed for the team. For the 26 players in this squad, I didn't look at media quotes or who is a dual national, just whether players could bring something for the team. To unpick this theme of identity a little further, we spoke to Ahmed Talal, a Moroccan journalist here in Doha. He had this to say on what it means to be Moroccan. One thing I, I, I know and I also realised about Morocco is that every Moroccan loves his country more than a thousand or a million percent like I, i'm sure you have seen the pictures in times square and in uh, uh washington and in london as well and in uh, miami and all over the world like when morocco achieved this historical achievement all moroccans all over the world went out celebrated cheered because their love moroccans love their country wherever they so the identity to answer your question is the love towards our country
Out in Casablanca for the Athletic is Jacob Whitehead. He's there to help us build a picture of the impact of this Moroccan success in their homeland. There he's met Muna and Sara who own a dance school. Here's Muna's thoughts on the subject of identity. We are Arabic and we are Africa, so both of course, and that's why it's uh, amazing because we have a great part of the world behind us and also a lot of people that nor Arabic, uh, neither Arabic nor African are behind the local book because they want for the first time something change. They want to see Africa succeed. They want to see Arabic people not pointed out about something uh, bad like it was this past 10 years. So uh, it's like this uh, thing is uh, it's a federation of all the world uh, population. Identity and culture are inextricably linked. And one thing you may have noticed when you've been watching the games is how the players go to celebrate with their mums after a match. Sarah explains more. In the Arabic and Muslim country, uh, culture, we spoke about, uh, we spoke, uh, about uh, the love of uh, uh, our mom, it's very important, like it's a condition to go to heaven, even if in the religion. Look, the, 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 the fact that you have to be uh, uh, very kind and respectful uh, uh, and care about your mom is very important. So um, I'm not surprised to see all the guys uh, running to uh, to see their mum after the game. So from mums, let's move on to the football. That's why we're here, after all. During this World Cup, Morocco have been the big rising stars. In their first match, they drew nil-nil with Croatia before going on to beat Belgium, Canada, Spain and Portugal. And in all that time, they've conceded just one goal and didn't let Spain score a single penalty in their shootout. So how have they done it? The Athletics tactics writers Michael Cox and Mark Carey explain all on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The way the central midfield is played, I thought was really impressive. You know, they're quite deep without possession, but uh, Unahi and Amala both really good at carrying the ball forward. And also that the fullbacks as well can can push forward. We know about Hakimi uh, in particular down the right. They're, they're just really dangerous. So I guess it was quite a, a classic counter-attacking game plan, but they do commit players forward in the counters. You know, it's not just kind of the front three. In fact, they end up in a funny shape really where sometimes the wide players are tracking the opposition fullback so deep that they almost end up in kind of a back six and then the central midfielders are actually still pressing quite high at times so I feel like the central midfielders are always in a position to break forward and they've done that really well. Yeah I think Liam noted that only Portugal and, and South Korea have attempted more switches of play than Morocco in, in this World Cup even more impressive considering how little possession they actually have Morocco I think they average about a third of the, the possession across all the matches so it's because I think of their strength in in wide areas. Michael mentioned their their fullbacks as well are very strong on the ball as well as off the ball. But their strength in in those attacking wide areas with Buffal and, and Ziyech, they want to get the ball quickly as possible to isolate their their opponent in a one v one. So they have to play direct, I guess, kind of from back to front, but also across the pitch as well. And I think Buffal especially, I think I mentioned this before on this podcast that he's been fantastic all all tournament. Key to their success is Morocco's answer to England's St George's Park or France's Clairefontaine, the Mohammed Six Academy. 
There, players are developed and ready to represent their country and make it to the world stage. Coach Walid praised the work and commitment of the country to invest in football. En grande partie, sa réussite aujourd'hui d'avoir créé l'académie. A lot of our success is down to the creation of that academy. We have great infrastructure now, many new stadia have been built and training facilities. And that's great, because we're always drawn dual nationals, like me. But we understood very quickly that we need to focus on training in Morocco to develop our youth. We have lots of players who are the product of his training system. That's great because it shows that Morocco and Africa have made progress in training players themselves. We have shown the world that Morocco has made great progress. Back at a Morocco training session, journalist Ahmed Talal explains more about the academy. So Mohammed VI Academy was named before uh, Mamora Center, and they had a different name uh, since the old era of the old uh, Moroccan Federation of Football. Today with the new president, Mr. Fawzi Lakja, who has given a lot to, to football and to soccer and has given back the, the, the identity and the, the, uh, where Moroccan football should have been, he has done a lot. And so uh, one of his strategies was to rebuild because this center exists since the 80s. And so uh, Fozi, uh, it was kind of getting old. And so when he became president in 2015, one of the, his first achievements was a successful achievement was to change that center and to give it a modern look. So he changed it, made a nice five-star hotel inside it, made the, uh, I mean, modern gyms, modern classrooms, because it's not only sports, but it's also has also the academic aspect. So uh, with this, we have built the biggest uh, formation center in Morocco, like all the African clubs and the African national team come there to, to prepare for their preseason and everything. So this is not only an advantage for Morocco, it's also an advantage for the African and the Arab world. And their work on the pitch has certainly caught the attention of willing suitors. The athletic football correspondent David Ornstein has the details on what could be a very profitable World Cup for Morocco's midfield. I think one of the most interesting parts of the January transfer window or the summer one subsequently will be how the market, the industry reacts to the Morocco squad because they've had so many standout performers who, albeit many of them are at quite high profile clubs already, it's not like they're a bunch of minnows um, or unknowns. However, they have probably um, significantly raised their stock. And I'll take the midfield three, for example. Everybody's talked about Amrabat you know, discussions in, in certain parts of the media about huge transfer coming in January. As I understand it, it's more likely that will take place in the summer because Fiorentina don't want to lose him now. Um, they will know they stand a better chance, most likely, of recouping at least the 20 million euros that they paid for him. Uh, I think it was in the summer of 2020. He was linked heavily with Tottenham last summer. They considered him Antonio Conte is a massive fan of his, but they decided to go for Rodrigo Bentancourt. And so it's a really interesting situation that I don't sense will necessarily be resolved in January. His midfield partners at this tournament, I think, are slightly more interesting because you've got Unahi uh, and Amala. Um, Unahi has just 
extended his contract at Angers in France by a year. Um, he is 22 years old. There's no release clause in his contract. And some conversations with clubs in the Premier League, the Bundesliga and La Liga in Spain had already started um, arising before this tournament and no doubt they're going to continue. I'm sure his representative's phone is going to start burning and maybe the Angers um, hierarchy too. And then Amala on the other side of the central midfield three, a very different situation. He fell out of favour at um, at Standard Liège because he was refusing to sign a new contract on the deal that expires in the summer. 30th of September was the last time he played for them and yet he's starring at this World Cup um, and what is likely to happen now is that um, Liège accept a nominal fee for him in January to avoid losing him for free in the summer you see these sort of breakout teams and, and their players then get traded afterwards and I, I think that trio could could really um, attract some major attention in the transfer market. Remember, coach Walid only came in as Morocco head coach on August the 31st this year and his impact on the team has been immediate as Morocco and QPR forward Ilias Chair explains. You can see what he did with the players. He created an environment that was um, really like a, like a family and I think in my humble opinion I think he's the best coach in this tournament although people will say he's very young or not experienced, but I don't think we as players, we really care about that. I think he's the, he, he's the best possible man to take us as far as possible. And um, it's not only about football, it's also in life. I think he teaches a lot of things outside of football, in life, with, with our wives, with our parents, religion, whatever. Whenever you have a problem, you can go to him and, uh, and he will be your, 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 your dad, your big brother in that, in that moment outside of being a coach. So and we all wish him the best because he, he, truly, he truly deserves the best. But what about the man who got Morocco to the World Cup in the first place? Surely he deserves a voice. Nick Miller and Jerry Derso spoke to Vahid Halihozic. He's a French coach who four times has qualified for a World Cup, but three times has been booted out before he could grace the greatest stage in football. Unsurprisingly, he doesn't take it well. It's me who won this qualification and I'm prevented from going to the World Cup. It's a true sporting injustice. It's immoral. I don't understand it. It's the dream of all managers to manage at the World Cup. Just like the players, managers too. Three times I have been prevented for different reasons. It's something that has disappointed me very, very much. At the moment, everyone speaks about the World Cup about the team. It was me who worked three years to work, to build. I made a lot of sacrifices and then I am moved aside. It is truly a sporting and moral injustice. The problem? Well, that depends on who you speak to. But Hali Hozic's version of events suggests that someone much higher up than him was calling the shots. The president put me under too much pressure. There was too much pressure from media and certain other people. I let them know certain players were posing problems and I wasn't okay with that. This is not about Hakim Ziyech. Other players who posed problems were dropped. 
Each manager these days can have problems. Look at Manchester United and Cristiano Ronaldo. He posed problems. He was dropped. It's just like that. The Federation wanted the players that posed problems. The president took a decision that I did not appreciate at all. The sacking really got to me because I did not merit it at all. You probably wonder what he thinks of all of it now, looking at the way that the team are currently performing. Well, when we asked, he didn't want to talk about Morocco again. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. With great success, however, comes a great clamour desire, yearning to be there, to be part of history. And ahead of Morocco taking on France in a World Cup semi-final, of course, there are hundreds, possibly even thousands, who want to get a taste of the action. In Doha, to get a ticket, you have to queue overnight, as the Athletics' Jay Harris went to find out at the Al Janoub Stadium on the eve of Morocco's biggest match ever. I was there from 2 a.m. Yeah. 2 a.m. last yeah. night. Um, you've only just got the tickets? Yeah, I've just got the tickets. What's and this the... box of lunch. Lunch? What, yeah. did they give it to you? Yeah, they gave to anyone who got the ticket and gets out from the exit, they give. What, what, what's been going on with the queue? It seems like it's quite disorganised. Yeah, man, you know, because uh, the people that got here, there are people that got here at 9, 9 p.m. last night. Yeah. And they're, they're still, they just got the ticket. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not fair to just come here now at 8 or 10 or 11 and start shouting. There are people here that have been queuing from, from 2 and 1 and 9, 10 p.m. Uh, last night. We came like uh, around 10.30 to 11. Like I have my blankets. Like last Saturday, we got the ticket easily. But uh, yesterday and today, there's too many problems. There's no tickets. Just, I'm sick, I have fever, yeah. I did not get anything, and now I'm leaving. So I'm you're leaving up. without a ticket? Yeah. I started queuing for uh, 12 hours, yes. So and I come yesterday to uh, clock on 11, yes, yesterday. In you evening. came here yesterday? Yeah, yesterday in the evening. Where, where did you come from? I come from actually Morocco, and uh, I live in Norway, and I came from Oslo. And uh, they told us to, they, they have uh, 30,000 tickets and we don't get this and we, it was hard to to get this uh, ticket. Abby went to meet Jay to find out a little bit more about the situation. So obviously this is one of the biggest games in Morocco's history and probably also for the whole of Africa. The gates were supposed to open at about 10am, I got there about 11 and instantly it looked as if all the, the gates were shut. So I thought I've either come too late and I'm in trouble or um, they've not opened yet. And after speaking to a couple of people, it became quite clear that they hadn't opened yet. So immediately there was this, this sense of frustration and that just built up over the, the two and a half hours or so I was there. It's quite hot, you know, they've had no sleep, not had enough water, not had enough food. So you could just see the kind of tensions rising. Um, security were trying to do their best to, to get people in organized queues. But I saw on multiple occasions them move the metal barriers so they were basically redirecting people where to queue which only added to the confusion um, so some fans get pushed out of line so some fans 
uh, sitting on each other's shoulders, shouting at people. It's just a real sense of chaos, which is a, which is a real shame because this, like I've already mentioned, is supposed to be a, a huge occasion for Morocco supporters. And for people that don't know, Royal Air Maroc, so that's like a Moroccan airline, have been putting on, I think it's 30 flights. And so, so many fans can come from Casablanca um, over to Qatar for this game. But a stipulation is that they don't have to have tickets to get on those flights. So there were so many people, even at Al Janoub this morning, who had clearly just either rocked up this morning or last night because they had their suitcases on them. So that just kind of adds to this thing that this is a huge occasion and people were just so desperate to get their hands on tickets um, that just too many people ended up turning up in the end. And there's already so many Moroccan fans in Doha that I imagine Wednesday is going to feel well, well, like you're in Casablanca, Marrakesh. Um, you have been to a few Moroccan games. Just tell me about the atmosphere there. So the first game I went to at this tournament where the atmosphere blew me away was like Argentina, Australia. Um, and the Argentinian fans were like bouncing at the end. You know, they were bowing to Messi. And I thought, well, OK, Argentina, hands down, best fans at this tournament. Then I went to um, Morocco, Spain. And that was just another level. That was crazy. I've never, I've never quite experienced anything like that before. When you grow up, that's what you expect um, World Cup crowds to be like. Um, you had Morocco fans probably unfairly just behind both goals and they were like doing this call and response to each other. There were drums behind both goals. There was this tiny section of Spanish fans that never had a chance. Um, but at a tournament where obviously they have, more, well, not accusations, that atmosphere hasn't been great a lot of the time. Morocco fans have just really added a little bit of colour to this tournament. Like I said, that Morocco-Spain game was absolutely sensational. The noise they made, they all partied in the Souk-Wakif afterwards and a few of us followed them. That's just what a World Cup's about, that kind of clash of cultures, people being so happy. Spoke to so many people who were like, this is huge, you know, we've, we've made history, we've reached the quarterfinals for the first time. Now they're in the semifinals, so I expect the noise levels to be something that we've never heard of before, completely, out of, completely insane. Um, but it's just been a total joy to kind of watch them experience that. And that's really where we need to return to because the Moroccan fans are fun here, as Jay says. They fill the streets on match days, support their team through it all and have won a lot of hearts here at the World Cup. And for their followers, their fans, well, it's all a bit surreal. I am in the semi-final of the World Cup. Me as a, as a little boy, I could have never ever dreamt of something like this. People can dream again easier and okay, believe that something amazing could happen. This is the dream team and this is the, 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 the Moroccan that I dream about. Morocco's run is historical. It's a dream we're living. I hope that it's a real dream and that we're still not believing it because it's something big. This is something we have never seen before. Sometimes you really have to take a second and look back and see how Moroccan football was and how it is today. So thank you to all, to whoever made this dream happen. And this qualification is going to give a new strategy and a new vision to Moroccan football and African football. To read more on Morocco and get every football story that matters, head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod to find out our latest offer. The Athletic.